build up one another. Be like-minded towards one another. Welcome one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Look to the interests of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Pray for one another. Do not lie to one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you'll be destroyed by each other. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. A hundred times in 94 verses in the New Testament, we are commanded mostly positively, but you heard some of those at the end, and I didn't read all of them, we are commanded towards certain actions towards one another. To live in such a way in a community. And in this passage, we see that three times. To love, to show hospitality, to serve one another. Our one-anothering matters. And I apologize to you English folks that I just added I-N-G on the end of a word and made it one. But we are one-anothering. It matters to the strengthening of our faith as well as our witness to the world around us. And so my theme this morning is simply this, that Christianity is radically other-centered. Now, in Scripture, that will sometimes take a, a, an approach that's kind of internal, and that's what we're talking about today. There are plenty of other passages that will look outside of the body of Christ, there's certainly those places, and we'll, we come across those, but our focus is internal today because that's where Peter is, and I want to talk about three things as we think about this radical other-centeredness that takes place in the body of Christ. We are to be grounded in prayer, guided by love, and we are gifted for good and God's glory. So let's start with uh, grounded in prayer now, last week, in verse 3, Peter says that time's passed to live like the Gentiles do, the way they want to, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So he gives that list, right? He said that in verse 3, and he's speaking to a people that have been e eternally changed by the resurrection of Jesus, and there's lots of ways you could, you could characterize that list that Peter gives in verse 3, but I think you could at very least call those actions or activities, those behaviors, self-centered and self-focused. To engage in those things is to seek your own pleasure or your own good rather than the greater good of others. I, th I think you could say that. 
and the kingdom of God that we become a part of because of the work of Christ and our faith in him is completely different. So then when we come to verse 7, Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. See, this is an alternative community, if you will. It's a new way of living, and there's a contrast between the way they had lived, many of them, and how they are to be living now. Therefore, be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. We live out this sobriety and this self-control in light of the return of Christ. Just a couple of verses prior to this, we looked at this last week, as we look to our vindication when we're going we're, we're gonna to be judged by the world. We're going to be misjudged by the world. But we seek our vindication in Christ, who is the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. So Peter's already looking at the return of Christ, the consummation of God's purposes, and our, the fullness of life in Christ that will be ours at that time. That's what he means when he says the end of all things is at hand. It doesn't mean that Peter thought that Jesus was going necessarily going to return the next day, the next year, or even necessarily in his lifetime. But if you look at the redemptive history that is taught in Scripture, you see that we are in the last days. Now, for all we know, we are still a part of the early church. You know, we have a way of looking at, you know, the first, second century, third century and say, well, that's the early church. And indeed, that's the early, early church. But we could very much be a part of the early church still. But what remains is for Christ to return. And that is it. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. So scripture's unified testimony is that we don't know the day or the hour when Christ were, is going to return, but we are to be watchful and waiting. We're to be patient, but also expectant of that to come. And so we live in light of the return of Christ. And this isn't the first time that Peter has spoken about being sober-minded in light of the resurrection and the return of Christ. Uh, Jacob preached from chapter 1 verse 13 therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of jesus christ in the next chapter peter will call us to be sober-minded because we have an enemy who is always prowling waiting to devour us but here, we need to have our eyes open to the realities of the world that we live in and the world to come. We're citizens of a, a different world, a different kingdom. And so how do you live out your hope? How do you live that out when you're harassed and tempted? Well, here's where prayer comes in. You see how Peter connects the sober-mindedness and self-control, which is a, to be focused not on yourself, but for the sake of the community that you live in, the body of Christ and beyond, then you're going to need to pray. You're going to need prayer. So Peter ends verse 7, he says, for the sake of your prayers. 
What's the connection? Well, I think the connection's pretty clear. If you're busy living for yourself, then you probably aren't spending a whole lot of time praying. Particularly praying for the kingdom of God, praying for your brothers and sisters in need, praying for the ministries of the church, praying for the children of the church to hear and respond and know the hope of God. You're going to be too busy with your parties. You're going to be too busy trying to earn or maintain what you're seeking in this world. I like the message paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. He says, stay wide awake in prayer. Prayer is radically or should be radically other-centered. Now, that is not to say don't pray for yourself. By all means, please pray for yourself. But what are you praying for yourself? What are you asking God to do in your life and for what purpose? So indeed, it's not such a matter of, well, we can't pray for ourselves, but it's about being focused on those around us as we seek God's will within us. And so we need that. Our brothers and sisters who are in need, we need to pray for them. We need to pray for the advance of the kingdom of God. We need to pray for the ministries of the church. We need to pray against the enemy of our souls We need to pray for the gospel to go out. It's unending. And there's lots of different ways that we can do that. I don't get a chance to do it every, every week. But I'm trying to, on Saturday, send you out those prayers that are a little bit more big picture, kingdom focused, other centered. Even as I also remind you of the needs that we have within our congregation. So I didn't get a chance to do it yesterday. But I'm trying to do that. Walk in your neighborhoods and pray as I've encouraged you before. I want to get back to doing that locally. There's all sorts of ways. Of course, we pray together in church. We pray when we gather in small group settings. We're teaching our children to pray. We're praying in all sorts of ways. But it does require a willingness to be sober-minded and self-controlled. And I wonder if Peter had his own experience in mind. Peter, among the disciples there who fell asleep when he was called to be watchful in prayer. You remember this? Fairly well known. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to be betrayed. They're praying in the garden. And Jesus says, can you watch? Can you wait? Can you pray with me? And instead, what does he find the disciples doing? Snoozing. Taking a nap asleep, out. And Scripture tells us it wasn't just one time, was it? It wasn't just two times. Three times he comes and asks them, can you not stay awake in prayer with me? I wonder if Peter had that in mind. They allowed in that time their circumstances to dictate the lack of prayer rather than their prayers grounding those same circumstances in a sober-mindedness and self-control. And if we, as a church, are going to be a gracious city on a hill, then we are going to need prayer. We are going to need to remain dependent upon it. And here's what we say, and we've set out, that North Hills will humble ourselves in regular prayer that is modeled and encouraged as we gathered, recognizing it as the source of our spiritual power and wisdom. 
So what will that mean? That will mean that we need to pray again and again and again, not as a box to check, but as a way of keeping uh, ourselves other-centered as a way of life. That takes lots of different shapes. It will be infused with your own personality and experiences and needs and circumstances. And yet we will all need to pray because Christ will return. We will need to pray because it is one of the primary practices of a new life. And you need to pray because you have a Father in heaven who delights. Please hear this. He delights to have you come into his presence. When you pray, do not forget that. Even as you set your focus on a variety of needs. God longs to hear from his children. He loves to have us share what is on our hearts. And by that prayer, we are changed. But not only do we want to be grounded in prayer, we, wanted to be, we, we need to be guided in love. If we're going to be other-centered, we're going to need to be guided in God's love. So instead of being guided by self and the inclinations of the world or the flesh, Peter calls us to love one another. Uh, One pastor says biblical love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows in seeking the highest good of the one loved. And it is one of the hallmark characteristics of the Christian and therefore the Christian community. Those love one another's, or sorry, those one another's that I read, the one that you will read most frequently in the New Testament is love one another. It's rooted in the love of Christ and his command. What did Jesus say on that night that he was betrayed? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so this is what it looks like. It looks like Jesus dying for us on the cross, even though there was no guilt in him and no merit in us, he still exchanges his life for ours, his righteousness for our sin, our hatred for his love. There is no greater demonstration of love than what Christ does by laying down his life for us. And so then Christ's sacrifice becomes the lens through which we understand what love is and what it should look like. And so Peter commands and commends these Christians to keep loving. You see that in verse 8. Above all, keep loving loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The above all speaks to its importance. The earnestly, as translated here in the ESV, speaks to the intensity or depth of that love. It speaks to the sacrifice. There was a woman at church one Sunday, and she was surprised because another woman had come up to give her a a, a big hug before the service. And this woman frequently was snubbed by the one who gave her a hug. They did not have a good relationship. And so she's wondering, what's going on? What initiated this change of heart? Well, she got her reason at the end of the service. The pastor 
at the end of the sermon says, your assignment for the next week is the same as last week. I want you to go out there and love somebody you can't stand. Now, I don't think that's what Peter has in mind. And a, a hug, they'll all be watching kind of what happens in the foyer. It, it won't suffice, right? It's not enough. In fact, it can just be put on, and that's not what Peter is commending. Love is much harder, isn't it? And it requires much more sacrifice. And why does Peter command this? Why does he say, above all, keep loving one another, do this earnestly? Well, he says, since love covers a multitude of sins, he seems to be quoting Proverbs 10, 12, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So there's your reason. Remember that these sojourners, these aliens and strangers, these exiles, they're going to be pressured by the world outside. And do you ever come home and, crank, uh, and are cranky? I mean, this would never happen with me, but I just mean, if you, you had a hard day, right? And you were cranky with the people that you love the most. That, I, I know that, I mean, just like sometimes happens out there, right? Why? Because you're feeling pressured by the world around you that then that stuff spills over to the people that you love. And that's exactly what Peter is warning against. While you're pressured by the world to live and act and do a certain thing or a certain way, while they harass you and they treat you poorly, don't take that home with you to the church. Don't let that hatred spill over because that's going to stir up strife. Instead, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, that does not mean that we ignore what needs to be addressed, what needs to be confronted, what needs to be disciplined or uh, addressed in some form or fashion. Love covering a multitude of sins doesn't mean sweeping it under the rug and acting like nothing happened. No, it means choosing to overlook offenses that you can and forgiving those that you can't overlook. It's not a matter of, of love saying, well, it doesn't matter. You can, you can speak poorly to me. You can mistreat me. You can sin against me. That's not at all what Peter is saying. Love covering sins is not covering up sins, and, and it pains me to say that all too often I see churches covering up sins because they think they're trying to do something laudable like protect the name of the church, but instead they bring a har harsher reputation. No, to cover up sin is not love or loving, but to forgive the repentant and to reconcile with those who are willing to be reconciled with us when it is appropriate to do so. Then we live out the love of Christ. Don't use love as a weapon. Abusers must be confronted. Sinners must be called to repentance. Love does no wrong. But in the normal course of living in community, so think of my analogy of the, the, you know, the, the husband who's just had a hard day, right? Um, got, a, got an email that just struck him the wrong way. 
If he comes home and he speaks poorly to his wife or his children, what are they going to need to do? They're going to need to forgive. What is he going to need to do? He's going to need to repent. He's going to need to ask for forgiveness. That is what it means for us to be guided in love within our other-centered, radical community of God's love. And so we choose willingly to overlook some things and address others, but forgive as Christ calls us to forgive and has forgiven us. And so then you say, well, verse nine, what does hospitality have to do with love? Because I'm gonna put that under verse nine, under this section of guided by love. Verse nine says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Well, the word hospitality is a compound word in the Greek. It combines the word of love and stranger. That's literally what it means. So in this time, so when we were coming back from our trip a couple weeks ago, couldn't get back to town because of the ice, we were able to go online, look up a place we could stay in a hotel room. No problem, right? That was easy. Well, during this time, while there were inns, they were often unsavory places. They were not places of good reputation. You couldn't go online while you were traveling and book the Motel 6 or the Radisson or the Weston or any of these other ones, right? You stayed where you could stay. And so what Peter is encouraging these Christians to do is to be hospitable, to show love to even those who are strangers, but in particular, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only, but particularly because they're gonna need your love. They're gonna need your help. But if you do that with grumbling, what does that reveal about your own heart? That your actions are not motivated by love. They might be motivated by duty. They might be motivated because, well, I need to show you some hospitality in the hopes that you might show me hospitality, quid pro quo, as we say. It might show all sorts of things, but it will not show a heart of love. And if we're going to be radically other-centered, not only are we praying, not only are we being guided by love, but we're recognizing that we are gifted for good and for God's glory. Do you know about the great stalactite organ in the Luray Caverns in Virginia? I just learned about this. In 1954, Leland Sprinkle, he was a mathematician and electronics scientist who worked at the Pentagon. He, on a tour, heard one of the tour guides take a mallet and tap one of the stalactites. And it made this, this tone. And so he got inspired. And so he was given permission, I guess. <laughs> he didn't do this uh, just on his own. But he went around and he found all the stalactites that would be needed to make an organ. And you can go online, you can go on YouTube or wherever. I listen to the Moonlight Sonata be being played. Uh, by an organist, so it, you, know, you can actually he's there playing, but these stalactites are being hit and made these wonderful tones, and he selected these tones from over three and a half acres of the caverns, and he painstakingly altered them to precisely match the tone that is needed, so that together as they operate, as they've been made and shaped, they come together to make a wonderful symphony. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever been compared to a stalactite, but I'm going to do it. So think of yourself as a stalactite making unique sounds and tones. You have your own shape, your own experience, your own place in the world. But just like Leland Sprinkle knew just how to create not just one tone, but many coming together, God does the same thing as he gifts us for service in the church to one another and to the world around us. He's doing the same. He's shaping us, shaping our sound, shaping our, uh, who we are so that we can hear the music of the gospel again and again and that others can be called to hear it as well because it is a note, it is a song of peace in a world that is full of all sorts of noise in the den of self and sin. And so Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Whoever serves is one who serves, sorry, uh, serve one as good stewards of God's very grace. Verse 10, verse 11, whoever speaks is one who speaks of oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, I don't, Peter's clearly not trying to give a list of all of the spiritual gifts. In fact, he really only mentions two or two large categories, that of speaking and serving. What he does make clear is that all gifts are from God, that all believers receive those gifts, and that we are called to steward them. A steward doesn't own. A steward uses what he or she has been given on behalf of the one who owns it. And we're called to steward those gifts that God gives to us, and all those gifts are his grace to us, and for us, and for one another. And so, one of my favorite quotations from Ed Clowney in his book, Called to the Ministry, is this. When God gives, he calls. When he calls, he gives. That is, if God gives you a gift, he's going to call you to use it. And if he calls you to something, he's going to give you what you need to fulfill that calling But each of us will be in a unique place and we will often discover our gifts by our serving. You know, the church is not an assembly line that's just cranking out the same widget over and over again. No, it's something much more beautiful and unique. And we serve the church at Christ's behest and the Lord's gifting for the sake of the world and for each other. And and this requires us to be others-centered. So in our speaking or in our serving, the gifts that God gives us, both are vital. We always must seek the Lord who gives them. Speak on his behalf. That should give those who speak pause. And serve in his strength. That should remind those who serve that we must continually seek God's strength for that service. If we seek to speak in our own words or serve in our own strength, then we will see the evidence that what we are doing is not for the sake of others, but for self. But that's not where Peter is driving. He gets to the end of verse 11, and it's, it's like he breaks into song. He breaks into this doxology. In order that everything may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever. Amen. 
That's the motivation that is above all motivations, living for the glory of God. Our other-centeredness has an ultimate purpose of glorifying God within us and through us. And that glory will be evidenced regularly in our devotion to Jesus Christ. He's the one that makes it possible for us to fulfill our created purpose. We are made for God's glory, but sin bends us away from that glory. It bends us towards ourself and seeking our own glory, which merely leads to our ruin. But that ruin is being undone. And the Lord has chosen us to be a part of that. We won't always get that right. Because there will be a struggle with sin and selfishness. We'll be focused on ourselves. We'll be upset with the people that we love. We'll treat people poorly. But God is at work within us. And he is using us. And we need to look to him in those things. So we follow our king into these new ways of living for the sake of of others recognizing that we're gifted for their good and ultimately for God's glory and I'll conclude with this I I, I kept for some reason I kept thinking of Dobby you may know Dobby from the Harry Potter series Uh, he's a house elf he belongs to the Malfoys who are quite evil and cruel Um, so just think of a little character he's a little elf He disobeys them, warns Harry Potter. He's freed from his enslavement to this evil evil family, and he's free. Gets to do whatever he wants. He's kind of unemployed. He's ostracized by others, but he kind of is happy being free. He likes working at Hogwarts. He comes and goes, and he has this new community, this new fellowship with his friends, those he's close to. You know the character's or you may know the characters from the story. And in a later story, Dobby uses his freedom to rescue Harry Potter from a greater danger than from before. His new life as a free elf was not used ultimately for himself, but for the sake of others. He became, in his freedom, in his new life, radically other-centered to the point that he gave his life. There's a line in there. He says, Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf, and Dobby has come to save Harry Potter and his friends. And that's exactly what he did. Those stories actually speak to the power of sacrificial love. Now, we, of course, have a master in the Lord, but we recognize that he has freed us from the domain and dominion of darkness and led us in the kingdom of his light to live a new life that is radically other-centered, not to use our freedom for ourselves, as Scripture would say, but for others. Those right here, right around you, and then as we seek to reach out into the world that is beyond, we use that gift, that freedom, and ultimately it will be for God's glory. So as you pray about that, remember God's steadfast love for you, that shows you what sacrifice is and use the good gifts that he's given you all for his glory. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, thank you for this time and and your word. And Lord, where there may be confusion or uncertainty or something that I've said poorly, then allow those words to pass. But instead, let your word remain with us. Let your spirit move and guide us, encourage and equip us that we might do your will 
in this place for your glory, and it will be for our good, and we thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.